hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Get real, let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. Let's li- let's listen in to sports announcer Dave Martin from NTD News. Novak Djokovic beat Australia's Nick Kyrgios yesterday in the Wimbledon finals to claim his fourth straight Wimbledon title and seventh overall at the All England Club. Although Kyrgios served up 30 aces on the day and won the first set, Djokovic was nearly flawless thereafter. With the win, Djokovic is just one behind Rafael Nadal's 22 Grand Slam titles for most all-time. But getting number 22 could be tricky. Djokovic is unvaccinated against COVID, and that already cost him a shot at winning the Australian Open title in January, a tournament he's won nine times. Next month's U.S. Open presents the same challenge as unvaccinated foreigners aren't allowed into the country. I talked to Dr. Peter McCullough, who's an internist, cardiologist, and epidemiologist in Dallas. He's authored more than 500 cited works in the National Library of Medicine. Dr. McCullough says the U.S. policy should be dropped. He also points to a 2022 study done by the Journal of American Medical Association that compared COVID tests of students versus student-athletes at 12 NCAA institutions. They shouldn't have any more restrictions than the general public would. You know, there was a paper published from NCAA athletes uh, on testing that was done on a routine basis, which the FDA has not cleared, by the way. And the athletes had a lower rate of COVID-19 than the general student population. Dr. McCullough also points out that the 35-year-old Djokovic is not someone he would have concern about should he get the Omicron virus. He also points out that the vaccine has significant adverse effects. The COVID-19 vaccines, all of them in the medical literature, there's over 200 papers, they all cause heart damage. And that's the last thing that an athlete can possibly risk. Heart damage can lead to heart failure or tragically sudden death. He's clearly made the right choice. Uh, And in fact, the vaccine injuries extend beyond the heart. There can be damage to skeletal muscle, the nerves, the brain. Uh, So much of what an elite tennis player is, is at risk when they take a COVID-19 vaccine. The U.S. Open starts on August 29, and absent Djokovic, Nadal will likely be the favorite to win. I can tell you that uh, the news cycle now is, is starting to have story after story of relatable characters that have basically stated they're not taking the vaccine, including a famed quarterback, Aaron Rodgers, podcaster Joe Rogan, Kyrie Irving, great basketball player, Jonathan Isaac. Uh, We've had uh, player after player. Cole Beasley used to play for the Cowboys, now plays for the Buffalo Bills. Uh, Recently, it came up on my social media feed of a baseball catcher who's he's he's basically not going to go to Canada and play. And, uh, you know, he's made his case. He said, listen, I'm I'm just not going to do this, that I've prioritized my health. And interestingly, in his interview, he mentioned that, you know, he had talked to his doctors 
and he had doctors and he had input that said, listen, he's young, he's already had COVID uh, several times, and he doesn't want to uh, doesn't want to risk it. And so I thought that was a pretty significant uh, development that we're starting to see relatable athletes come out and make these types of statements uh, in order to get the public thinking that it's okay not to take the vaccine. We've had President Bolsonaro from Brazil go on Tucker Carlson, basically said, listen, I'm not taking the vaccine. Here's the reason why. Uh, interestingly, it came up on my feed from international correspondents that um, are in my network that uh, in a break from prior statements, one of the hardest core people in the Canadian health policy arena, Dr. Kiernan Moore, in an interview yesterday uh, for Ontario said that, listen, uh, there needs to be a risk-benefit analysis on the risk of myocarditis in a young person versus any benefit of getting the COVID vaccine. And you could see that the media was, uh, you know, they were on him. They said, well, what, when did this change? And and, and, and why is this coming up? Like, why do we need to consider risks and benefits now? Uh, that's really worth watching in terms of uh, hearing that statement. Now it's, now it's muted. Uh, it's in the situation where many of the governments have, in a sense, railroaded mass vaccination on individuals. But uh, it's clear there's a, a changing tide. The health minister for Denmark has come out publicly and said it was a mistake to vaccinate young people. And then I think probably the biggest uh, policy or political development has been Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson, UK Prime Minister, abruptly resigns. Uh, far more than 90% of those hospitalized or um, uh, who have died with COVID now, uh, typically BA4, BA5 subvariant of Omicron, are fully vaccinated. So this is a real trend. On uh, Substack uh, that's trending this week, uh, Paul Alexander, who's been on the McCullough Report, Paul has summarized eight studies now showing the more heavily vaccinated a person is, uh, the more severe COVID syndrome they develop and the longer it lasts. Uh, the CDC has a health advisory out now for fully vaccinated regarding Paxlovid rebound. This came out on May 24th. I had a whole McCullough report on that where it's clear the vaccinated do worse with Paxlovid and don't get as good a coverage. I'm Clinically, I'm using Paxlovid, hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, molnupiravir, corticosteroids. I'm using all the drugs in the McCullough protocol. I'm not, I don't have any biases towards any drug, um, but I can tell you it's clear that the vaccinated are paying the price. The vaccines never stop transmission. They never stop the occurrence of disease, and they're not reducing the severity of disease. They're not reducing the risks of hospitalization and death. The other update I have is there's a lot of legal activity going on right now. Many of you know that the American Board of Internal Medicine in American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology and the American Board of Family Medicine are targeting pandemic response doctors. They're targeting the doctors that you've relied on to uh, get early treatment. And I'm one of them. They've actually targeted the doctors who've tried to help patients through the pandemic with uh, threatening their board certification and a professional uh, review uh, the term they're using in the threat letters is potential disciplinary action. Well, what's happened there is um, led by uh, Derek, Dr. Garagalakalis from South Texas, who has been on the McCullough Report. There's been a giant uh, <clears throat> uh, physician letter and public support letter uh, that's gone into the American Board of Internal Medicine. Uh, Ms. Robin Upshaw has led a giant public support uh, letter that's a big signing uh, letter that's gone into the American Board of Internal Medicine. Ron Johnson's written 
Richard Barron, the CEO of the American Board of Internal Medicine, and said, listen, come out of the shadows. Let's meet with the doctors in Washington, and let's go over all the data together. Barron has not responded. Johnson has gone ahead and arranged uh, for experts, including myself, to come to Washington and review the data at uh, the um, Van, An Van Anstel um, meeting room in Hillsdale College uh, in Washington. That'll occur on Wednesday, August 3rd. We're going to invite all the other uh, stakeholders there and to see who will uh, show up there. Uh, we're trying to bring them out to have a fair discussion. Uh, and then uh, most recently in the last week, the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons has sued the American Board of Internal Medicine, American Board of Family Medicine, Obstetrics and Gynecology, and the Department of Health and Human Services for what, what is basically tortuous interference of a doctor's ability to practice and take care of patients. So AEPS uh, will hopefully get an injunction on these activities or a stay so we can get some rational thinking in here. Things are spinning wildly out of control. More and more patients are getting sick. I do need the ability to respond to them uh, without any restrictions whatsoever. And I need my ability to communicate. I uh, So much of what I do as a media commentator is, uh, you know, I answer questions. I answer your questions. I answer the, the questions of uh, individuals uh, in the press and the media. And I do the best I can. I tweeted that out recently. I said, listen, I'm doing the best I can. I answer a lot of questions on the fly. And uh, this idea that uh, somehow uh, I'm going to have professional uh, damage and discipline for my um, best efforts in answering questions, whether under oath, on TV, in the media, is completely uh, rejected. And, and I can tell you, I am not going to tolerate this, uh, this act of censorship and professional reprisal tortuous interference, also breach of contract with my board certification. All of those are legal implications. Uh, the next big wave of legal activity is occurring in social media. And I, uh, many of you know I uh, appeared on Emerald Robinson this morning. That was the first thing she asked about. And at myself, Robert Malone, and uh, uh, Brian Tyson, that we are suing Twitter. Okay, so Twitter is being sued by us. And in that lawsuit, uh, we are making it clear that uh, Twitter has uh, violated its contract and it's overreached in terms of uh, users and kicked people off of Twitter without giving any reason. Simply said, you violated uh, the Twitter community without giving any rationale. It's clear that Twitter is trying to bias the information flow favoring mass vaccination and the false government narrative and not allowing free flow of information. And then we have uh, uh, other lawsuits that have just come in. Uh, in my frequent contributor group on Fox News is Jay Bhattacharya and Martin Kaldorf. They will be experts in a case that's been filed in the uh, District Court of Western Louisiana Monroe Division, the Judge Terry Doughty. Remember, Dr. Uh, Judge Doughty is the one who uh, relied on my testimony and that of Jay Bhattacharya to advance uh, the case all the way to the Supreme Court that struck down four out of the five Biden mandates for mass vaccination. So Dowdy clearly has a, a backbone. This case is the state of Missouri versus Joseph Biden. Uh, additionally, another uh, state has uh, joined. And here, uh, this is uh, the filed complaint 
is that the government has colluded or coerced social media companies to suppress disfavored speakers, viewpoints, and content on social media platforms by labeling the content disinformation, misinformation, and malinformation. The plaintiffs allege the suppression of disfavored speakers, viewpoints, and contents constitutes government action and therefore violates the plaintiff state's freedom of speech, the First Amendment of the United States. And so through discovery, if we find out that the government has been basically pulling the strings on social media, then we have a government violation of freedom uh, of speech. And so this is a pretty straightforward case. So the uh, Dowdy case will be going in parallel with the McCullough Malone Tyson case against uh, Twitter. We have the AAPA case against the ABIM, American College of Sexual and Gynecology and Family Medicine support letters in from uh, Senator Bob Hall in Texas and Senator Ron Johnson from uh, the U.S. Senate. Hall's uh, letter is up on my Twitter feed and uh, he has a, a great lead. I'll just read it. Uh, Dear Dr. Barron, so this is Senator Bob Hall, who's over 80 years old, East Texas, writing Richard Barron, who's the CEO of the American Board of Internal Medicine. Bob Hall is an ex-military man, a wonderful man of faith. Bob writes, freedom of speech is so sacred that our founding fathers placed it just after freedom of religion in the First Amendment. The freedom is to, uh, to express one's opinion in the exchange of ideas was, was the catalyst for the rapid advancement of science, technology, and medicine in America. No one has a claim to absolute truth except God and the Bible, especially not the government. If the free exchange of ideas had been prohibited by government when our country was formed, science today would still profess that the earth was the center of the universe and doctors would still be bleeding patients to cure ailments and thalidomide would be given to pregnant women. Freedom of speech is uh, even more critically important to health and the well-being of the American people today because we have government agencies like the CDC, FDA, and NIH making policies and issuing guidance based on politics and not science. And so Bob Hall goes on. This is a wonderful letter. It's up on my Twitter feed. I've also put it out on the C19 distribution group. We are witnessing modern American history unfolding right in front of us in a rich backdrop of world history that's par that's parallel with things in so many ways. Uh, I have to say, uh, over the last uh, week or so, I've had some time to read and get caught up. And so I've read for the third or fourth time now, but really dug into it. Peter Bregan, uh, COVID-19 and the Global Predators, We Are the Prey, Peter and Ginger Bregan. You have to pick up this book. It's in our bookstore on America Out Loud Talk Radio, uh, McCullough Report. And uh, the book is uh, the best factual timeline of what's going on. How did this actually happen? How did all of these stakeholders coalesce into this very formidable, uh, what John Leake and I call in our book, Courage to Face COVID-19, we call it the biopharmaceutical complex. People call it the bioindustrial complex or pharmaceutical government complex that there is a very strong syndicate of globalists. And these globalists include the World Economic Forum and the Gates Foundation and the Wellcome Trust and uh, the Coalition, Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness and Innovation, CEPI, Gavi, the EcoHealth Alliance, the National Institutes of Health, multiple, multiple academic organizations in the United States that are receiving NIH funding, which is prized funding. 
And it's all organizing towards this globalization, this idea that we're going to have wave after wave now of uh, infectious pandemics of which uh, we will need to respond to. And as long as an emergency is declared, the globalists, the stakeholders who are set to profit from this, literally can drain treasuries of the United States with the SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19 emergency, uh, 10% of the GDP was basically printed and injected into the economy. The stakeholders that were profiting were in vitro diagnostic companies, the uh, health service arena, which was getting premiums for COVID admissions and COVID care, pharmaceutical companies like uh, Gilead and, and others that made uh, preferred products, uh, clearly vaccine manufacturers, uh, distribution, uh, Walgreens, CVS, all the big chain pharmacies. Uh, you know, there was a huge injection of cash into this in order to respond to COVID-19. Now, that didn't improve worker uh, productivity. It didn't improve other aspects of the economy. So uh, theorists would say, listen, that's a giant amount of sunk costs. And so here we are now facing record inflation, an econ economy that's teetering. There's no reason to teeter. We should be humming right now. We should not have inflationary signals. But, but the reason why inflation has kicked off is that we have had this artificial printing of money injected in the GDP for a pandemic response, and it appears not to be ending. Uh, there's now concern we're in the BA5 wave, and the BA5 wave is triggering more fear. There's discussion of indoor masking mandates. Uh, there's a doubling and tripling down on vaccines. We know now that President Biden's announced over 130 million additional doses of fall COVID-19 vaccines, which may have adjustments for BA4 or potentially BI5 subvariants, but they're going to be some type of uh, um, bivalent or chimeric mixture and uh, without any testing. Now, the FDA has now agreed with the manufacturers, there won't be any more randomized trials. So these are just going to be rolled out and people are going to be told to take them. Uh, many are becoming more and more uncomfortable with vaccination as the only solution to the pandemic. Uh, Paxlovid was the only broadly uh, offered outpatient solution to the pandemic, and it's stumbling because of Paxlovid rebound. Uh, the fact it's not fully integrated into a protocol like McCullough Protocol or FLCC or AFLDS. And so we have a situation where our government response uh, is uh, continuing to fail. And there is a loss of trust in our government stakeholders, uh, CDC, NIH, FDA, White House Task Force, the White House Coronavirus uh, uh, Coordinator. Many of these individuals, by the way, were a part of what Bregan describes as pandemic preparedness uh, uh, events. And in the Bregan book, going back now uh, a decade or so, there were 36 pandemic preparedness events, 25 of which generated documents. Six were in-face meetings, including the famous John Hopkins SPARS pandemic and in 2017, and then Event 201 in 2019, which basically said there's going to be a coronavirus pandemic. This is what we're going to do. The stakeholders and people involved, including uh, academics, uh, Gates Foundation, other interested vaccine developers, as well as the Chinese. The Chinese were involved in Vent 201, the head of the Chinese CDC. So whether or not this was all just planning for something to happen in the future, or whether or not it was actually contrived to have an emergency and then have a response to mass vaccination, we may not ever know. But the one thing that's clear is that we are in the midst now of a three-year sojourn 
into SARS-CoV-2 and its variants, so hyperdominant variants largely occurring because there's been an attempt to mass vaccinate the entire world as opposed to selective vaccination of the elderly. We've seen a failure of the vaccines now, which have negligible vaccine efficacy, and we've seen an absolute biological catastrophe in terms of vaccine safety. June 11th, 2022 is on the McCullough Report. Dr. Katerina Lindley announced the pharmacovigilance report from the World Council for Health calling for withdrawal of all vaccines off the market because they're not safe. Over 40,000 certified deaths by uh, four major databases worldwide. And the real death toll is much higher. It could be many fold higher if we actually knew how many people immediately died after this vaccine. Not a single person should die after any vaccine, period. I don't care how good it is. And clearly, if death is an acknowledged risk of vaccination, it must be completely voluntary for someone to lose their life at the end of a needle. And under no circumstances can anyone receive any pressure, coercion, or threat of reprisal for taking a potential fatal injection of genetic material coding for the lethal Wuhan spike protein that was called the Wuhan Institute of Virology, WIV, strain of the virus. So with all that, let's go ahead and launch the McCullough Report. On the back side, I've got a wonderful interview with Dr. Shelley Cole from Central Texas, and she is board certified in obstetrics and gynecology. She's going to review telemedicine, pandemic response, a few women's health issues. And this is the third or fourth edition of the McCullough Report. I have not had a music segment, partly because I haven't had time and partly because I haven't had any suggestions from you, the audience. So please send in your music suggestions of music that's uh, themed or context for the issues of the day. So let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. Get real, let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. Dr. McCullough, I've got COVID. Oh no, this is my third time of having COVID. I don't know why I'm sick over and over again. I can tell you I'm getting these calls all the time. This could be you, this could be people in your family. It seems like we're besieged with viral illnesses and one of the most important tools that we have, one of the most important resources at our disposal is Healthy Cell. Healthy Cell is a unique blend of nutraceuticals and supplements designed to impact different aspects of life depending on the product. It's in a microgel technology. Immune Super Boost is the product to use once, and so my elderly patients, I recommend twice a day to boost the immune system to give the best chance for recovery from viral illnesses and prevention of the next one. It's doing everything you can to help your body Healthy Cell Immune Super Boost. And now for the month of July, if you go to the banner bar on our website or to HealthyCell.com and in the promotional code, type in America50, you'll get a 50% off your order. That's unheard of. Again, the promo code is America50 and get 50% off your next purchase of Healthy Cell Immune, Immune Super Boost. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report. Many Americans worry about their health four times a day. That's 120 times per month. To minimize the worries, leading nutritional supplement company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost, an immune supplement that contains full effective doses of science-backed nutrients like vitamin C, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea, all in a one-a-day, pill-free, ultra-absorption ingestible gel. 
Supporting a strong and resilient immune system can be simple. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code AMERICA50 for 50% off any order of Immune Super Boost. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code AMERICA50 for 50% off. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day. Yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. All right, you've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the pulpidone iodine-based nasal spray, Cofix RX. They talk about it because it's a product that actually works in combating colds, flus, and coronaviruses. Cofix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. It's simple. By attacking viruses where they incubate, you make it easier for your body to heal. Check out the Cofix RX banner ad on AmericaOutloud.com and save 20%. By using promo code OUTLOUD. Let's get real. Let's get loud. On America Out Loud Talk Radio, this is a McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. It's a great pleasure for me to welcome, for the first time to the microphone from Central Texas, Dr. Shelley Cole. Dr. Cole received her undergraduate degree from Texas A&M. That's right, the Texas Aggies. And she went on to go to medical school at Texas A&M. And I would imagine she was in probably the first few decades of graduates from uh, the Texas A&M School of Medicine, because I remember when I applied there, it was relatively new school in Texas. Uh, she went on to the famed Mayo Clinic and trained in obstetrics and gynecology. And we were lucky to get her back in Texas. She joined uh, Scott and White Health System, which is a large uh, integ vertically integrated health system in Texas. And then from there branched off into private practice where she's been in practice uh, now in gynecology and in, in more broad terms, wellness medicine, both in the office and in telemedicine. And I brought Shelly on the program to give us an update on how telemedicine has changed over the last few years. And then specifically on her observations on where we are with the COVID-19 pandemic. Shelly, welcome to the McCullough Report. Well, Peter, it's an honor to be here. Thank you so much for asking. Uh, life is very different three years ago, and we didn't really even practice very often the telemedicine. But when we started, when the COVID pandemic started, that's really when we hit the telemedicine hard. And uh, what does this really mean? So from a patient, most of our listeners are patients. And uh, we have a big U.S. audience, but a huge following in Canada, Australia, Europe. Uh, what does TELUS medicine mean, just so the average person can understand it? Well, it's very simple in my office. Uh, we actually just call them on the telephone. And uh, we wanted to reach more people. You know, I was stunned at the beginning of the pandemic when I had patients calling the office and they were telling me that their doctors were turning them away and refused to treat them. And, you know, I wasn't really uh, trained in treating upper respiratory infections. I, I was a primary care provider, but 
it really didn't get into it very much. And I decided, you know, my gosh, um, I can read the literature and I can uh, I can treat these people. And so we started back in March of 20, uh, writing pre- prescriptions for prevention, um, as well as therapeutic doses for hydroxychloroquine primarily at that time. Mm-hmm. And then the treatment evolved. But before COVID-19, or I guess during the pandemic, when you started telemedicine, Give us an idea of what would be a usual telemedicine call in your in your practice. Could it be a young woman seeking uh, oral contraceptives, or uh, you know, someone with lower abdominal pain? Just give us a general sense. Well, most of the time, it would be wellness based discussions, um, recommendations about vitamins. Um, those kinds of things. We do provide services, uh, detox services um, across the uh, Texas. Um, and so we would ship products to patients and then they would call and we would do testing, visual contrast studies, as well as neurotoxic questionnaires and, and get information from them to try to help them get their body burden of toxins out. So gynecology is kind of a a hands-on one where, you know, somebody's bleeding and we really do need to see them in person. Right. I think that's the main point I wanted to make because when this first happened, I tried to do telemedicine too. And good Lord, as a cardiologist, patients have heart valve problems or having trouble breathing. And people would call in from Maryland or somewhere. And I say, you know, Lord, you, you need to, somebody needs to listen to your heart valve. And listen to your chest. And I imagine the same thing is true in gynecology, that lower abdominal pain, all the things where the, you know, the hallmark of, of gynecology is the, uh, uh, you know, gynecological exam, ultrasound, uh, whether it's pelvic ultrasound and or intravaginal ultrasound, um, other imaging tests, and of course, uh, lab tests. But aren't there things that indeed you can manage by telemedicine? Let's say metabolic bone disease and osteoporosis. Absolutely. Uh, and I think that people have become more comfortable with it. Um, you know, the, there will never, when you're diagnosing a disease like low, low thyroid, hypothyroidism, there's nothing like having the patient sitting there in front of you where you could actually see clinical signs and symptoms and, and try to really put the picture together. It, there's nothing there's nothing like having the patient in person, but I think that the telemedicine really has opened up opportunities to communicate more with patients more frequently. And so, you know, as far as, you know, the pandemic, we were, we were just taking care of patients and it was, uh, there were times that, you know, yes, I would have loved to have been able to listen to their lungs, um, but we couldn't, we just couldn't. And we were trying to do the best we could and it worked out well. You know, we've taken care of probably around 3,700 uh, patients. Um, I took care of about 3,000, and then we started adding some staff to help out. Um, and and really, they did quite well. Well, that's extraordinary. You know, the reason why I'm a little bit late getting on this call is I just had a COVID patient myself. <laughs> he's in my practice. He's, uh, he's a young guy, but he has a coronary heart disease. And I just wanted to pull up. Uh, the features here. Um, uh, young guy uh, originally uh, started out, he was wavering on whether or not he wanted to do anything. Um, uh, and, and I said, just start the nasal washes and what's called the OTC bundle of McCullough protocol, which is zinc, vitamin D, vitamin C, quercetin, and then over the counter famotidine, but at a high dose. 
Um, and then uh, he checks in here. His wife has also gotten sick, but I guess she's pregnant and, uh, and her doctor is going to manage that. She's not a patient of mine. And then he just messaged back, sorry, sorry that uh, I'm late on this. Is it possible you could write me for some medications? Uh, yeah, he's born in 1981, so he's pretty young. Um, he says, my PCR results are still not in. It's been over 36 hours. Can you imagine we're three years into this and he still doesn't get <laughs> PCR results? He goes, but I've got worsening uh, uh, body aches, congestion, fever, sore throat. And, I, and I, you know, I've been following this pandemic and with the BA5 subvariant, which is now almost the entire United States, it, the sore throat does tend, tend to predominate like in his case. And if he has a fever, when one of my concerns is that it's not only symptom relief, but it's also contagion control. As he is brewing with this infection and his pregnant wife are brewing in the same house in Texas. And right now up in Dallas, it's about 105. I know people aren't going, right. out, going outside, right? You know, if we start treatment and we just get this thing knocked down, early treatment reduces the duration of infectivity and this cross infectivity between the two. So what I did is um, uh, he uh, had signaled that he had wanted Paxilvoid. I said, that's fine. I prescribed Paxilvoid, but I also prescribed doxycycline, uh, prednisone, and I used Montelukast or Singular. And it's typically four to six drugs. Now, you know, I could have used ivermectin, uh, azithromycin, uh, budesonide, and, and dexamethasone, and colchicine, or aspirin. I could have gone for different drugs based on different features of the syndrome, but I'd had two or three communications with him and I made my call. I think there's a drug burden that if you prescribe 18 drugs for someone, you know, Steve Kirsch, who's been on the show, he's in our email circuits. He'd recently got COVID and Steve is a, a, a flamboyant individual. And he listed all the things he was doing. He actually had 26 different pills he was taking. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So I, my point is, Shelly, you can overdo it. So uh, what is the typical state of affairs? What does treatment look like for you now with the BA5 uh, subvariant in telemedicine? Well, I think you're absolutely right. They, they, they really are not having the, the severe respiratory complaints that we were hearing about two years ago. And um, it, the sore throat is a common complaint at this point, congestion. And so, you know, we're, we, we still use quite a bit of ivermectin. Um, I don't like to prescribe um, antibiotics to somebody if, unless we really are concerned that they may be showing signs of a secondary respiratory infection. So I try to avoid it just because I, I just don't like antibiotics much. So I, I'm kind of a, you know, um, minimalist on that. That's for sure. So what, so ivermectin and what else would you prescribe? Um, well, certainly we do the, um, hydroxychloroquine. Sometimes we'll use the budesonide, okay. but, um, but we're, we're pretty limited. Uh, you know, we, we try, we, we use your protocol for the, uh, the supplements, your vitamin D, vitamin C, right. quercetin. Well, you know, if you, yeah, if you follow that, if you, if they use over the counter peps that are famotidine, at 80 milligrams a day, they're getting an antihistamine, anti-acid, and we know that actually reduces viral replication through the Tempus 2 receptor. And this recent paper I was so impressed with in University of Virginia by Mora and colleagues, where just aspirin and famotidine, really well done case-matched uh, study, about 20,000 patients, just aspirin and famotidine uh, was associated with about a 45% risk reduction. In, in progression. Yeah. So that's in the uh, OTC bundle. 
I have many young people his age, honestly, where they don't get any prescriptions. They can just get through it with the nasal washes and with the uh, drugs with no prescriptions. Now, if if he would have been uh, a senior citizen and he uh, or had atrial fibrillation, uh, was in a wheelchair, you know, I may have done more. And uh, clearly, aspirin is a part as you know, as our base anticoagulant in most COVID treatment applications. There are times where I have extended it to the use of anoxaparin or um, or Eliquis. But I can tell you, since the beginning of this year and in the Omicron um, era, I have not had to use anticoagulants. It just is not. I just haven't had severe cases. I haven't had anybody who's been near hospitalization since yeah. beginning this year. I, I completely agree with that. Yeah. Well, that's good news to hear that you're not needing the anticoagulants. We 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 feel the same way here. Um, it, it is much milder, um, and they're you know they're still scared because of course the media has hyped it up, and so they're they're still scared. You know that something's really bad is going to happen to them, but but their their symptoms are very mild. Now, uh, two case studies that just came up in my circles was a a man, he's a triathlete, he's 56 years old, and he's, uh, you know, on top of his game, quadruple vaxxed, gets uh, sick, he's in Europe, he doesn't get any early treatment, gets put in a COVID hotel, gets worse and worse, and then hospitalized, fortunately, doesn't go on the ventilator, essentially gets little or no treatment. I think maybe he got some dexamethasone or or um, uh, Paxovoid or remdesivir or something very late, but he got essentially uh, no treatment. Um, and uh, uh, his mother, who's 83 uh, in assisted living, unvaxxed, gets uh, COVID. There's both the first infections and she gets uh, McCullough protocol or FLCC protocol, uh, you know, however you want to attribute it. Um, but she goes on ivermectin 600 milligrams per kilogram, five days, uh, doxycycline, prednisone, nutraceuticals and supplements. I I usually use Montelukast because I've been influenced by the South African protocols, Singular, which is very inexpensive. And honestly, it's good to have on for other things that come up later on during allergy season. So so I use that and she was over in about five days uh, I rechecked her because you know I, I had some report that I'm not doing so well at about 12 or 15 days. Rechecked her and she was fine. She just had some post-COVID syndrome. So here we are, a quadruple vaxxed young uh, fit guy gets hospitalized with COVID. And then we have a, an 83-year-old uh, assisted living and she gets through it with early treatment. Now, you could say, listen, it's all about early treatment. If you just would treat people early, we wouldn't have this problem. But people are reporting, and today on the Substacks, Dr. Paul Alexander, who's in our group, former White House advisor from Canada, Paul has synthesized eight studies out there that show the more they take the vaccines, the more difficult COVID is. It's just like in that younger person in that vignette. They actually get more severe symptoms than someone who who simply hasn't taken the vaccines. Well, that's just, it's it's not surprising to me, you know, that I was trying to really hone in on how many vaxxed patients that we're taking care of now. Um, you know, our population is skewed towards the unvaxxed. You know, they're they're kind of re- researching us and finding us out on the internet. And and so, but I'd still say we, we have 50-50, you know, that 
um, maybe maybe 60, 40 vaxxed uh, versus unvaxxed at this point in, in the telemedicine arena. Yeah, I would say the same thing. I, I would At the start of the pandemic, the first part, when I was with um, the Health Texas Provider Group, I had a smaller practice because I had more, I was a program director, I had more academic responsibilities. You know, my blend was early in 2021, I think it was about 70% vaccinated, 30% unvaccinated. Uh, but now that I moved over to um, Heart Place, I'm in a private practice. It's just the opposite. People have sought me out, and I bet my practice now is 70% unvaccinated, 30% vaccinated. You know, in, in a bigger practice, and virtually nobody who's contemporarily boosted now. So if someone has taken the vaccines, they've said, you know, I've looked at this, and this doesn't look good. I'm not going to take any more of these. And and I, I think I have very few patients who are freshly boosted within the last six months. Is that the same in your practice? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. I think they, you know, they have buyers um, where, you know, they're, they're definitely uh, concerned and, and most of them after that first booster, they're, they're done with the, the vaccinations. Because we're using actually ozone in the office and so we're doing ozonated blood for those long haulers um, and vaccine injured. How does that work? So uh, ozone therapy, uh, you know, O3, we're generating O3 from medical grade oxygen and we add it to the blood. Uh, We just pull off 200 cc's of blood. We add the ozone directly to the blood and add mix it. And it turns a crimson, bright, bright red. It almost looks like arterial blood. Um, so the, the hemoglobin molecule is, is saturated um, with the ozone. And then we uh, put it back in and um, it's, it's highly beneficial. Um, I, I'll tell you the brain fog complaints, um, just um, energy, stamina, um, all improve with the um, ozonated blood. So the clinical experience, how all this starts out, I hope everyone understands, it starts out with an empirical approach and then observation. And so the observation is key. That's how it all starts. And that's what Dr. Cole is describing. Then we get to points where we can do prospective cohort studies and, and randomized trials. But it always starts out with this empiric observation. So, uh, so it sounds pretty good. It sounds like the principles are the same to try to deliver for at least some period of time hyperconcentrated oxygen uh, to tissues through, you know, either oxygen saturation or um, oxygen concentration in plasma through the um, oxygen carrying capacity. And um, are there any studies yet on on this approach? Uh, not in COVID, not in COVID. And uh, kind of the grandfather of ozone therapy, Dr. Frank Schallenberger, I've reached out to him because I would love to do a study um, starting with the uh, vaccine injured in the military. Uh, we have a large uh, military base nearby in Colleen, Fort Hood. And I would love to do um, an ozonated blood study with them and, you know, determining pre and um, post care, um, how they respond to the to the ozone. We need some specific parameters like, you know, their oxygen, um, VO2 max and so forth. But I wanted to reach out to him to see, you know, how he would set that up, because I do think it, it needs to be steady, the, the, the responses. And, you know, we've had patients with the shingles after the vaccination. Um, we've we've had um 
Uh, and they, they have great, excellent recovery um, with the ozone, ozonated blood. That's great to hear. Uh, you know, another paper out of my Twitter feed today at P underscore McCullough MD uh, deals with uh, this issue that uh, it was revealed on the McCullough report now about, gosh, about six months ago, but it's good to see it in print. It's from Dr. Bruce Patterson. And I want your reaction to it, Dr. Cole. Bruce Patterson, uh, clinical pathologist uh, who trained at University of Michigan, who's formerly at Northwestern and Stanford. He's now leading a company called InCellDX. And the title of the paper is SARS-CoV-2 S1 Protein Persistent, uh, Persistence in SARS-CoV-2 Negative Post-Infection, Post-Vaccination Individuals with Long COVID Post-Vaccination-like uh, Symptoms. And so it's basically vaccine injured where he's ruled out any um, effect of the uh, virus that people have not gotten sick with COVID. And he was able to find S1 and S2 segments of the spike protein detected in CD16 monocytes uh, and out to three months. And that's as far as he looked. But the important thing is it correlated with symptoms. It correlated with symptoms and it correlated with markers of platelet activation and pro-inflammatory cytokine production. Uh, and he's trying to put this together that these people who develop these post-vaccine injury syndromes indeed is related to the spike protein. Your reaction? Well, I think it's very interesting that it actually correlates uh, with clinical symptoms because um, we've all suspected it. Um, I think you know we're we're all seeing um, uh, the spike protein issues. Um, I. I I would love to hear more about it. I, I'd love to see, you know, exactly, um, you know, what what his conclusions were. But you know, the the, um, the issue is measurement of the spike protein. You know, my theory is probably some people uh, maybe take up more or less messenger RNA or adenoviral DNA, or they get, you know, lots where it's more degraded, or the lipid nanoparticles are more um, are more corrupted or dissolved. And most people actually get a relatively a dud in terms of the, the vaccine, but those who get a good installation of the messenger RNA or adenoviral DNA for the spike protein, and they produce a large quantity of spike protein for a long period of time, those are the ones who get sick after the vaccine. So I think it's the inverse of what people think. I think it's the ones who actually are getting good lots uh, yes. with yeah. relatively low use. You, you know, I wouldn't want to be the first one in the day to, to have them open up the vial and, and use it yeah, because they're probably actually getting uh, uncorrupted lipid, lipid nanoparticles and good messenger RNA. And they're probably going to get a very good installation of, of, um, of genetic material and spike protein production. But the reason why I mentioned that is there is uh, a paper out. It's also on my Twitter feed. It was published uh, in non-peer-reviewed format in trial site news, clearly showing there's a relationship to vaccine injuries and lots of different lot numbers of, yes. so that, yeah. that fits. And then the other observation, it's, this is somewhat in the Patterson paper and it's somewhat, somewhat in the hyperbaric paper, is that post-vaccine injury syndrome symptoms tend to travel together, meaning patients who have tinnitus oftentimes will have some pleural pericardial symptoms and have small fiber neuropathy, or those with myocarditis commonly will have headache and small fiber neuropathy. Uh, It's many times there's at least two organ systems involved with these post-vaccine injuries, suggesting 
more widespread production and distribution and, and uptake of the spike protein. Absolutely. And I know you were mentioning about the DNA issues um, just recently um, and, and concentrating certainly in uh, the spleen, but also the ovary and it being present in the brain. And, and, and we have all this information. You know, I, I went to the CDC website just to, to review what they were saying. And they, they again still say that the, that the um, vaccine does not um, affect DNA. I'd like to get your opinion on that. It's true. The CDC says, don't worry, it doesn't affect your DNA. Uh, the paper published by Marcus Alden, senior author is Yang D. Marinus from Malmo, Sweden, with a human hepatoma cell line, clearly showed uh, uptake of uh, the genetic code for Pfizer into the human nucleus and incorporation in chromatin, at least a 444 base pair what's called Amplicon, which is a reporting region, which they knew was going to represent the foreign code getting put into human code. The full base, the full code for the spike protein hasn't been demonstrated yet to get incorporated. And once incorporated, we don't know if it, uh, if there's any spike protein produced or not, is it completely repressed? Is it constitutively or inducibly produced? So uh, labs are racing to try to ver verify that report. But on face value, no one's challenged it and said it's not real. That in fact, it you know at least in this example. Now these are human hepatoma cells, which are liver cancer cells, and many people say that these are wild cells and they do things that are very abnormal. So this may not happen in the normal state. But the fact that in a sense we've crossed a line here, and the line was uh, to have uh, a new vaccines out there that actually changes the human genome was something that nobody signed up for. And if in fact that's happened, uh, I, I think, you know, world or human history has forever changed. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, if this doesn't pause and make us pause, uh, nothing will, you know, I don't know what the end point is on any of this and, you know, when, when will they stop? So um, I'm so thankful that you've gotten that information out. Well, you know, we've heard announcements. Uh, today, there was an announcement that Novavax, the antigen-based vaccine, just five micrograms of the spike protein in a matrix, received the emergency use authorization. Now, it still has to go through CDC recommendations. And many have been asking about that. Uh, it looked like it was about as effective as Pfizer and Moderna, more effective than Johnson Johnson, back when we had the old Wuhan spike protein. So many have asked me, well, Dr. McCullough, what do you think now? I said, well, you know, I think it's probably going to be at least mechanistically, it should be safer than a genetic vaccine, but it's probably obsolete. And in the briefing booklet for Novavax, Shelley, uh, they, did re they did report cases of blood clots and myocarditis. So some people actually reacted to the spike protein severely enough to develop blood clots and myocarditis. So we're back to the same problems. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, well, I, I'm sorry, were you going to ask yeah, a question? Yeah, I was going to ask you uh, just one more question. Um, I'm sorry, it's been a long day, Peter. I've been talking to patients, so please forgive me if I have a, a little brain pause here. No, that's okay. We, uh, this is, I've been doing the same thing, and I'm going to have to jump off for a next commitment. But I wanted to ask you one question, a futuristic question. Um, Moderna has said 15 messenger RNA vaccines for different diseases. 
the FDA recently has approved the genetic companies to not have to do any more clinical trials. So they could just kind of adjust a COVID vaccine and make it an Omicron or wild type or another variant and, and just literally put it on the market without any clinical trials. What's your comfort level now with these COVID vaccines, genetic antigen-based going forward? If someone comes to you and says, listen, you, you know, what should I do? Let me give you this scenario. I'm 75 years old. I'm pretty healthy. I've had a few medical problems. I'm overweight and I have easily treated type 2 diabetes. I've never had COVID before. Should I go for one of these uh, experimental vaccines in the fall? Well, we have, if, if nothing has, you know, stood the test of time, natural immunity has. And, and, and we know that early treatment is going to be the key. The person will have natural immunity. They'll be able to, I think there was a study that came out that showed 97.3% effectiveness with natural immunity. You know, we, we need to, we need to treat it early and allow them to get in a controlled setting um, get the virus. And if we can treat them early, then they do extremely well. And um, I would absolutely, uh, you know, discourage anyone from getting the vaccine. You know, we, we, we have so many deaths on the VAERS, um, of course, which underreports um, the, the um, diseases by what, um, 99%, I believe. So I think that Natural immunity is going to be the key optimization of the immune system um, and your protocol with vitamin D, zinc, quercetin, and vitamin C are pivotal. I mean, those alone have uh, have been therapy for viruses. You know, we, we don't want to, um, we, our, our immune systems can't afford to do any more um, hyperstimulation with, with any more uh, of these gene therapies that so I, I just would say, let's all stand by the scientific proven method of, of natural immunity. So you've made a good point. Actually, natural immunity, even in someone who has not been exposed to the virus. But Shelly, you and I were down in the Texas Senate on uh, June 27th, 2022, and the dean for the UT School of Public Health at UT Houston reported 99% zero prevalence in Texas. That means everyone's been exposed to it. So, so your point is now, uh, you know, everyone's got some degree of natural immunity and to trust it, uh, the citation that you mentioned was from Qatar, Kimatelli's the first author, uh, 97% protection thereabouts against hospitalization and death. We're not going to get hospitalized or die if we get another version of this virus. It's, in my view, it's indistinguishable from the common cold. Someone the other day, Sally, sent me by FedEx, I don't know how, like 15 home testing kits. And I, I looked at my wife and I said, you know, are we going to be testing ourselves over and over again? I said, forget it. Oh, I think I'm done with this home testing. I've had it at least a couple of times and, and I feel fine. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm observing Lots and lots of patients. I'm talking to lots of other people. Everyone seems to be get, getting through it fine at this point in time. Um, I, I, I think all signs of panic, all signs of excessive concern uh, at this point in time really can be dropped. 
recently a nursing home that's uh, well known to me in Dallas just had COVID sweep through it. I talked to the doctor. He was treating all the patients. I said, have you had anyone hospitalized? He goes, none, none. And, and you know, if you notice this, we don't hear any reports of nursing home outbreaks with rashes of people going to the hospital. You don't hear about that at all anywhere. That's so, right. so we're getting well, through. And, and didn't, they, didn't they drop the issue about herd immunity? You know, as we, um, most, most viruses, if you have at least 40% of the population has um, been exposed, you know, that is sufficient herd immunity. So, you know, this, I, I believe that we, we met that criteria probably two years ago. Yeah, right. So we started to shade in on herd immunity. Herd immunity, probably 40% is beginning to do something. When I testified in the Texas Senate in March of 2021, I said 80% herd immunity by CDC equations, which actually I think allowed for vaccinated to contribute. But the issue is, I think it's relatively irrelevant because Omicron has broken through natural immunity. People are getting it a couple of times. Herd immunity typically applies to something like smallpox. You're going to get it once and that's it if you're going to get it. Um, and so I think it's relatively irrelevant. The Omicron is, in a sense, melded into the the, uh, the landscape of the typical four URIs that some people get per year. Uh, kids in childcare get about 80 a year, young parents about 40 a year. Uh, older people who just don't have that much contact, we can have you know two or less URIs, uh, upper respiratory tract infections per year. Well, Shelly, this has been a great conversation. Um, how can our listeners uh, follow you or, or, or seek you out on the internet? Well, of course, I'm locked out of Facebook, you know, <laughs> so, so I, I, I can't get on my Facebook, but we do have a website. My website is healthysuccessworks.com. And um, we're here in Temple, Texas, and we're taking care of uh, patients from all across the country for COVID. Um, but we do take care of um, patients in Texas for telemedicine. And we'd love to, we'd love to see anyone who's um, needing care. Well, that's terrific. I know you, gosh, with a huge caseload and how many patients I've, uh, you know, in a panic over a weekend sent your way. You've done a wonderful job. I think you're going to be uh, recorded in, in, in Texas history as a real uh, heroic physician who stepped forward when so many other doctors were uh, fearful. And uh, by using your clinical skills, your intuition and, and good follow-up, we got our patients through the illness. And, um, and I think looking back on these years, I, I think we can feel good about the decisions we made. Well, I definitely think we're gonna be on the right side of history here. No doubt about it. Well, I'll let that be the last word. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report.